Well, today we're wrapping up our uh, fall sermon series on deconstructing faith. Uh, the Bible, it turns out, has a lot to say about this, doesn't it? Uh, the Bible is incredibly realistic about the fact that faith is hard, that spiritual growth is not linear, uh, that human beings doubt, and, uh, and there are often painful setbacks in our spiritual journeys. The Bible is very realistic about these things, but it's also hopeful. Back at the beginning of the, uh, the series, we, we said that reexamining faith and wrestling with doubts is a lot like taking your faith to the gym. Um, when you go to the gym, when you work out, uh, your weak muscles have to die so that stronger muscles can take their place. And likewise, when you deconstruct your faith, something simplistic, something naive, something incomplete breaks down. And ideally, something deeper and more resilient can take its place. And so deconstructing is often like a wilderness experience. It's a painful, um, a confusing experience that feels like a death, but that God can use to make our faith more mature and complete. So let's recap some of where we've been so far. We talked about how a belief and doubt are often mixed, and that's okay. Uh, Jesus is gentle with those who doubt. Jesus tells his followers to be gentle with those who doubt. Uh, we need to think critically about our faith, especially with people who think differently about things than we do, so that we can detect our blind spots, and, and so that we can separate Jesus from the cultural and the political baggage that gets wrapped around him, sometimes without our even realizing it. Jesus deconstructed an entire religious system that was based on fear and replaced it with one that was built on grace. God invites us to deconstruct with him, to talk with him about our pain, our grief, our questions, the things that trouble and confuse us. He invites us to complain to him. And the Psalms give us all kinds of resources for cultivating a faith that can survive complexity and confusion and disillusionment. Jasmine talked with us about how we need to deconstruct ourselves. We need to recognize and peel away the, the false layers and the false identities that we, that we put on throughout our lives. Because it's impossible to know God if you don't know yourself. And last week we talked about how our faith can survive toxic religious communities and even spiritual abuse. We talked about sometimes we need to take a step back and how we can heal, and what it looks like to step back into community. We're on, we're on a journey, all of us. We're on different journeys, but all of us need companions. All of us need people of, of understanding and compassion who will come alongside of us on our journey and say, hey, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to wrestle with these things. You're all right. Um, deconstructing is not something that happens out there. It happens in here. It happens within the church. It's not just among, it's not something that young people do. All ages of people re-examine their faith. A few people have asked me, you know, what do you, what do you think is driving so many people to deconstruct their faith now? And I think there are several factors. I think one of them is that there's just a lot less pressure to fake it, um, to conform. So people feel just much more free to, to, to publicly express their doubts and to question their faith tradition. And I think that that's actually a good thing not a bad thing. I think that spiritual abuse and toxicity are driving many to deconstruct. I think probably the biggest driver is hypocrisy and the unholy bundling of faith and politics that exists in so many places in the church today. I think that these things have drained Christianity of a lot of its credibility in our culture. One of the things I spent a lot of time thinking about 
uh, as a pastor is how can Christianity regain its credibility? How can it be viewed as a source of beauty rather than a power play? Because mere Christianity, the pure thing, is incredibly attractive. And it can be, and it has been, and, and it can be again a force for good, even in a pluralistic society. So how can Christianity regain its credibility among those outside the church and among those inside the church whose faith is wavering? And how can we deconstruct and reconstruct our faith to bring about greater beauty in and through our lives? This morning we're going to look at, at two texts, one from the Psalms, one from Romans. And what we're looking for is a posture as we navigate our spiritual journey, whatever that looks like, and a promise to sustain us as we go. So a posture and a promise. First, the posture. Psalm 119, we just sang some of it. It's the longest psalm. We're not going to read the whole thing, just the, just the tiny piece of it. The theme of the psalm is delighting in and living according to God's law. So let's take a look at a few of these verses here, uh, beginning in verse 27. Cause me to understand the way of your precepts, that I may meditate on your wonderful deeds. My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Keep me from deceitful ways. Be gracious to me and teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I have set my heart on your laws. I hold fast to your statutes, Lord. Do not let me be put to shame. I run in the path of your commands, for you have broadened my understanding. Teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees, that I may follow it to the end. Give me understanding so that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. What's the author expressing? What does he want? Verse 27, cause me to understand your ways. In verse 34, give me understanding. God, I want to know what you're all about. I want to know what you want from me. Why? Verse 34, so that I may keep your law and obey it with my whole heart. This is a posture of humility. God, show me your ways that I might walk in them. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. You know, a number of you who have been deconstructing have described a point in your journey at which you said to God something to the effect of, God, I just want to know what's true. I just want to know who you really are. I just want to know what I can count on and what you want from me. And that is a beautiful place to arrive at, even if it's painful getting there. What a beautiful posture to say to God, you're God, I'm not. If you're real, reveal yourself to me so I can build my life around what you reveal. There's a passage in the, in the New Testament about doubt that we haven't looked at yet. Maybe some of you have been waiting to see if I'll go there. It's a difficult passage. Uh, it's found in James chapter 1. It says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, wait a minute. 
you must not doubt? How does this square with everything else we've been saying this fall? I thought we could bring our doubts to Jesus. Didn't you say Jesus is gentle with those who doubt? These verses don't give off the same vibe. What's going on here? It's true. This is what James does best. He talks about things in ways that shake us up and make us think. James 1, the whole chapter is about trials. James says we should ask God for wisdom so that our trials can make us mature and complete. Presumably the goal of asking God for wisdom is so that you can effectively navigate life. So when James says you must believe and not doubt, he's saying, look, if you ask God for wisdom and he gives it to you, you should use it. You don't ask God for wisdom, receive it, and then say, you know what, I'm going to trust my own gut on this, thanks. That's being disingenuous at best and duplicitous at worst. James uses the word double-minded. You want God to weigh in, but ultimately you think it's your call. In other words, you know, you know better. I have a mentor who used to... Um, he used to consult with churches, and some time ago a church came to him asking for his advice, and he spent a lot of time uh, listening, trying to wrap his mind around their situation, uh, asking questions, praying. Finally, he says, all right, well, based on what you share with me, here's what I think you should do. And they said, thank you very much. And then they turned around and ignored his advice. And about a month later, same church goes to my mentor and says, you know, we need, we need your advice again. <laughs> what do you think he said? He said, after you rejected it the last time, I don't think so. I don't think so. James is saying, hey, it's great to seek wisdom. It's good to cry out to God for understanding, but you better use what he gives you. Otherwise, you're being insincere. And the author of Psalm 119 goes to God and says, give me understanding so that I may walk in your ways. Whatever you reveal to me, I will do it. Some of us have been in families or we've been in churches that have really kind of obscured the gospel. They've made it really hard to see what God is like. Really confusing to understand what it means to follow him. And if you've been there, it's refreshing to know that you can go to God and say, God, I want to know you. I want to see you as you really are. Reveal yourself to me. Show me your ways. But we can't stop there. We have to keep praying. We have to say, God, give me understanding so that I may keep your law and obey it with my whole heart. Can you pray Psalm 119? God, show me your ways that I may walk in them no matter what it costs me. If you only obey God when it's convenient, if you only obey God when it resonates with your tribe, guess what? You're no different than those who use God or who use religion for their own ends. If you pick and choose the parts of the Bible that you like, you may pick and choose different parts, but at the end of the day, you're still using God. You're still standing in judgment over God. He's an accessory. He's not a king. He's a consultant. He's not your Lord. You've got to be consistent. If it's wrong when someone claims to follow Jesus, but only insofar as it serves their politics, then it's wrong when someone claims to follow Jesus, but only insofar as it serves their career or their social life or their sex life. This is the difference between a contract and a covenant. In a contract, each party is looking out for their own self-interest. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. As long as we're both satisfied, we keep scratching each other's backs. 
But if I get bored or I find a better deal or I find someone with longer fingernails, I'm going to get out from underneath this contract because it no longer serves my interests. That's a contract. A covenant is very different. In a covenant, you say to the other person, look, I am committed to you. And I am looking out for your best interests. Pastor Greg Boyd says that faith is a covenant, not a contract. It's like a marriage. When you say, I do, you have no idea what you're signing up for. When two people get married, there's a lot they don't know about each other. They can't predict the future. They don't know what they don't know. All they know is that they're making a commitment to seek their partner's good till death do us part. When you begin following Jesus, you don't know him perfectly either. You certainly don't have your faith completely worked out. And Jesus comes to you, he says, follow me. And you say, okay, lead on. You make a commitment to him and that's where it starts. And sometimes we start thinking like we're in a contract with Jesus and we start asking the wrong questions. What's in it for me? What's this going to cost me? Is this worth it? Is there a better deal somewhere else? What do my friends think? What technically is fornication? What exactly can I get away with here? And these questions are all about you. There's no humility. It's about maintaining control over your life. Jesus is fine as long as he doesn't cramp your style or, or uh, you know, get in the way of your comfort or your ambition. A humble heart asks radically different questions. How can I be a better covenant partner? How can I bring joy to God's heart? How can I reflect God's character and glory? What does God want from me? Faith is not a contract, it's a covenant. So be honest. Ask your questions. Wrestle with doubts. Re-examine your faith and your tradition. Think critically. Do all of those things, but do it with humility. With a posture that says to God, show me your will and I will walk in your ways no matter what it costs me. That's the posture. All right, how about the promise? The promise is that if we come to God in humility, God's grace will explode in our lives and make us beautiful. That's the promise. What does this look like? Paul paints a vivid picture of it in Romans chapter 8. Um, some of us, this is, a, this is a, a, a chapter we return to over and over again. Uh, it's precious to us sometimes. That means it gets stale. And so I'm going to read it in the message just so we can hear it in a fresh way. It goes like this. begins in verse 5. Those who think they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle but never get around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's action in them find that God's spirit is in them, living and breathing God. Obsession with self in these matters is a dead end. Attention to God leads us out into the open, into a spacious, free life. Focusing on the self is the opposite of focusing on God. Anyone completely absorbed in self ignores God, ends up thinking more about self than God. That person ignores who God is and what he is doing, and God is not pleased at being ignored. But if God himself has taken up residence in your life, you can hardly be thinking more of yourself than of him. 
anyone, of course, who has not welcomed this invisible but clearly present God, the Spirit of Christ, won't know what we're talking about. But for you who welcome him, in whom he dwells, even though you still experience all the limitations of sin, you yourself experience life on God's terms. Stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, he will do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive to himself. When God lives and breathes in you as he does, and he does as surely as he does in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life. And with his spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ. So don't you see that we don't owe this old do-it-yourself life one red cent? There's nothing in it for us, nothing at all. The best thing to do is to give it a decent burial and then get on with your new life. God's spirit beckons. There are things to do and places to go. This resurrection life that you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant. Greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Papa? God's spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who he is, and we know who we are, father and children. And we know we are going to get what's coming to us, an unbelievable inheritance. We go through exactly what Christ goes through. If we go through the hard times with him, then we're certainly going to go through the good times with him. As we come before God in humility, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and cultivates true freedom, resurrection power, and childlike wonder. That's what we're going to pull out of this text. True freedom. Our culture says, stay in control. Keep your options open. Don't commit. Commitment always ruins freedom. The gospel says, don't kid yourself. Freedom? Your will is bound. You think you're free, but in reality, you are a slave to your selfish desires. In our natural state, you and I are severely limited by the fact that we constantly look out for ourselves. In our natural state, we only worship God. We only serve others insofar as it benefits us. Our wills are bound. Our freedom is restricted by our own egos. But the Holy Spirit can liberate us from our preoccupation with ourselves. How does this happen? Essentially, through worship. As the Holy Spirit helps us to see and respond to God's beauty, he becomes more captivating and enthralling to us, more centering than our own egos. God does a cannonball into our lives and displaces us from the center. It's a Copernican revolution of the soul. And it's the only way to be truly free. Unless God's glory, unless God's beauty displaces us from the center of our lives, we just can't get past the question, what's in it for me? We can't get past that. And it makes sense. Apart from God, we have to secure ourselves. We have to comfort ourselves. We have to justify ourselves. Of course we're going to be self-absorbed. 
But as the Holy Spirit liberates us from our self-preoccupation, a new, more spacious set of questions opens up for us. What is God doing? What does God want? What does my neighbor need? What would it look like to deny myself and put others first in this situation? Jesus was far more free than anyone else who's ever lived on planet Earth. Why? Because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was free because he was not limited by his own ego. He wasn't compelled to serve his own interests. He decided up front that he was not going to prioritize his own comfort. He accepted the fact that he was going to be misunderstood, that he would be rejected and betrayed by those closest to him. In the final hours of his life, he says, God, if the plan is for me to die, I don't like the plan. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Because Jesus wasn't focused on himself, he was free to put others first, like no one before or since. And the Holy Spirit can work that in you. The Holy Spirit can liberate you from your self-absorption so that you can put God and others first. And he does it through worship as you center your life on God's beauty and glory. That's true freedom. Isn't that beautiful? What about resurrection power? Jesus died a physical death. His body died. He stopped breathing. God raised Jesus' physical body to new life. And here Paul is saying that the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead can explode in your life. Exact same power. You know, a lot of people turn to God because something in their life is not right and they want to change and they're hoping that religion can give them some motivation, some goods to change. And usually we think it's going to go something like this. Okay, God is going to tell me what to do and then I'm going to apply a little extra effort, a little bit more discipline and I'll get there. Um, but if you remember two weeks ago, when Jasmine preached on Philippians 3, Paul already said, I am, that doesn't work. That does not work. It's a dead end. I obeyed the law, Paul said. I had perfect legalistic righteousness, but all my discipline did not make me a more loving person. It made me an arrogant person. It made me an exclusive person. It made me a violent person. Effort wasn't the problem. The problem was that I needed a new heart. St. Augustine says, you are what you love. You are what you love. You do what you do because you love what you love. The reason that I have beautiful flowers and dirty floors is because I love gardening more than I love housework. I said it, Beth, okay? The reason, the reason, how many wives do I have? The reason I get impatient sometimes is because at least in that moment, I love control and productivity more than people. You are what you love. Your love dictates your life. The reason you're stingy is because you love security and comfort more than the poor. The reason you're not healthy is because you love dessert more than exercise. All the effort, all the discipline in the world will never change you because you are what you love. The only way to change your behavior is by changing what you love. This is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit renews our hearts and reorders our loves so that our desires, so that our affections, so that the things that steer and motivate us match what God loves. 
It's the only way to change. Pick up any letter in the New Testament, all of them make the same assumption. They start out by saying, all right, this is what God has done for you in Jesus. Isn't it beautiful? So in light of this, here's how you should live. All of, all of the letters in the New Testament are structured that way. And all the arguments are structured that way. In other words, set your eyes on God's beauty, and then your heart, if it's really impacted by it, will naturally seek to please him. This is why Paul, you know, when, when he wanted the Corinthian church to be more generous towards the poor, he doesn't, he doesn't beat against their will. He doesn't tell them to try harder, to be more disciplined. He reminds them of the gospel. He says, look, guys, Jesus was rich, and yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich in grace. And when that truth gets inside of you, when you see how Jesus voluntarily became poor to lift you out of your spiritual poverty, when that becomes real to you, you will gladly give up your wealth so that you can lift others out of poverty. See? Notice Paul's not, he's not pressing on our will. He's speaking to our hearts. He's showing us something beautiful. He's inviting us to love Jesus more than we love our wealth and the things that our wealth affords. See the same pattern in Philippians 2. The church there was overrun with self-interest. Everyone was looking out for themselves. Why? Paul says because they didn't understand the gospel. So he explains, look, Jesus, even though he was God, did not consider equality with God something to use to his advantage. So he made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself all the way to death on a cross for you. And therefore, we should, in humility, value others as greater than ourselves. We should put others' interests ahead of our own interests. And when you see Jesus voluntarily giving up his privilege to become a slave, when you see him putting our interests ahead of his own, when that becomes real to us, when we see the beauty of that self-giving love, we won't have to be told to put others first. We will do so naturally because sacrifice is more beautiful to us than self-preservation. Ephesians 5, submit to, another, to one another. Why? Because Jesus laid down his life for you. 1 Peter 3, be willing to suffer for doing good. Why? Because Jesus lived the perfect life and suffered tremendously in order to save us. 1 Corinthians 6, don't cheapen sex. Honor it as a sacred gift. Why? Because your body's not your own. Because you were bought with a price, with a precious price of Jesus' blood. Do you see the pattern? We change, not by working on our behavior, not by trying harder, but as the Spirit renews our affections and shows us the beauty of Jesus in the gospel. Life change is not do it yourself. It comes through worship. It comes as we're electrified by what Jesus has done for us. As we behold his beauty. Finally, childlike wonder. I love Peterson's translation. It says, the Christian life is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's not a life that's controlled by fear or dread. Some Christian communities are incredibly skilled at cultivating fear and dread. One friend shared with me that after a while, her faith felt burdensome. She said the message she kept receiving from her church growing up was that good Christians not only have all the answers but they are always ready to defend God and argue vigorously with anyone who believes differently. She said, when I didn't have all the answers or when I didn't have the confidence to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with a skeptic, I felt like a bad Christian. I felt like I was useless to God, like God had no use for me. Her faith was filled with dread. It was a, a grave-tending life. 
and it's because she had been malformed. Paul says that Christian life is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's a childlike expectancy. Christian life doesn't begin with a performance agenda. It begins with a call. It begins with an invitation. Jesus comes up to us and says, follow me. And we say, where? And he says, you'll see. Years ago, I, I used to take middle school students on a mystery trip every summer. It was a four-day road trip. We had all sorts of adventures. And the best part was, from moment to moment, the kids had no idea where we were going next. It was great. Everything was a surprise, hence the name Mystery Trip. And looking back, oh, it was such a great metaphor for the Christian life. The Christian life is an adventure. It's a mystery. Jesus doesn't give us an itinerary. When we sign up, he says, follow me. I was preparing for a career in broadcasting when God called me to ministry. I didn't see this coming at all. I had no idea the ways that marriage and parenting would catalyze so much of my sanctification process. I had no idea Western Mass existed eight years ago. And I'm from New England. <laughs> Following Jesus has led me to all sorts of people and places I never imagined would be in my life. To scores of high-risk kids and foster families and to urban promise and to the homeless and to relief work and to students on the autism spectrum. Beth and I were having a, a conversation after our summer celebration service at the end of the summer. And I said, you know, it seems like every year the most significant things, um, the most joy-producing things that happen around here, I didn't plan. And I had very little, if any, hand in. I didn't make them happen. But God gave me a front row seat. What's next, Papa? I have no idea, but I can't wait. A young woman came to me earlier this fall and said, God has given me a heart for people with disabilities. And I want to help them flourish. And I want them to know that they belong. And I want them to know that God loves them. She said, when I do this, I feel alive. She didn't plan that. It's something God put inside of her. Jesus beckoned and she answered. Where is Jesus calling you? What has he given you a heart for? How is he making you come alive? Romans 8 presumes that you are a child. I wonder how you feel about that. Is that okay? You're a child. Jesus says, unless you become like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Does that sound like good news to you? It is. Children don't have to have everything figured out. Children don't have to craft coherence out of the mysteries of life. Children don't have to explain or defend their parents every uh, decision and action to every detractor. Children just have to trust. That's all. Let's pray. God, help us to trust Jesus, especially with the things we don't understand and can't control. Help us to grow in humility that we might seek you and walk in your ways, whatever it costs us. By your spirit, set us free from the tyranny of our own egos. Give us hearts that want what you want. And childlike wonder to keep following you down the road wherever you lead us. We pray as these things happen, as we are changed by the beauty of the gospel, you would make our lives beautiful. And it would give your good news credibility. It would help people see the night and day difference that you make. 
and so that even the most hardened skeptic would want it to be true, even if they couldn't believe it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.